All right, I'm here with Jeff Deist. Jeff is president of the Mises Institute. And welcome, welcome. Thanks for coming on the show. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so we were just talking before. I, I actually asked Jeff to come on and talk about a recent article he wrote. Um, what will it take for Americans to consider breaking up? Um, but you wanted to, you said, you said that you'd like to say a few words about my dad, who, as I was just mentioning, you know, it's, well, it's coming yes. up on a year. I can't believe it's been a year, but he passed away on, on the 29th of December last year. And um, yeah. <laughs> well, the thing about your father, uh, the great Butler Schaefer, I'm sure a lot of your listeners and viewers will know him and his work. But oh, yeah. the thing about him is I only met him once or twice. I didn't know him well, but like so many people, I feel like I knew him mm -hmm. because of his work. Um, yeah. And so here you've got this man. You know, I, I worked for Ron Paul for a long time. I worked in uh, mergers and acquisitions circles for a long time. So I met some uh, people on Capitol Hill who were very impressive, uh, well-known people with big resumes and pedigrees. I met some people in the M&A world who were very wealthy, some billionaires like Wilbur Ross, for example. Um, but what struck me is I probably only met two or three people in my life whom I really felt were geniuses or who in their presence, I felt like this is a really remarkable person. And I was just thinking the contrast because your dad was one of them. Oh, wow. And, um, and then Nelson Nash, a name some of your listeners might know, was another. And they were so physically different because Nelson was a little guy. <laughs> and uh, your father, Butler Schaefer, was a, was a tall guy. But in the presence of him, you just felt something. And I, I don't want to sound strange, but I actually was, was able to meet the Dalai Lama one time. Oh, wow. Because he, the current Dalai Lama was in Washington, D.C. for an event and it was outdoors and there was a bunch of people, but I just got to shake his hand. And he was, was too, not physically imposing, but had, you know, some sort of presence, some sort of whatever it is. Yeah. It's hard yeah. to define, but he had it. And, and your dad had it too. And, you know, I have some good friends who were hugely influenced by him on a personal level because they were law students of his. Yeah. And for one of them is the great Mark Victor, who's a criminal yes. defense attorney in Phoenix. And so he really changed their lives, you know, and, um, you know, I have here, I have his, his little pamphlet on intellectual property where he I makes a libertarian so case against it. That. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, this is a different argument uh, than the ones that Stephen Kinsella makes. It's, it's conceptually different. Um, you know, so that that was really fascinating to me. And then, of course, his book on property as yeah. a system of organizing human society, because as we'll discuss, mass democracy as a system for organizing or ostensibly organizing 330 million people is not working so well. Yeah. So, you know, I just, because I don't know you very well, I just wanted to, to sort of bring him up because yeah. I, I feel a need to express uh, <laughs> what an important and wonderful man he was. And uh, I'm sure you inherited his intelligence. So kudos to you. Well, <laughs> I hope so. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny because, um, you know, my sisters and I, we we grew up making fun of him our whole lives. And, you know, we hear the same old thing over and over again. And, um, you know, for, for 40 or 50 years, he's been saying, oh, it's all coming down. It's all coming down. And we, <laughs> you know, as much as we agree with 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 what he says and and have listened to what he says and also argued with what he says and over the years, you know, we kept hearing the same, the, the things that I think to the outside world seemed very um, like, wow, statements and, and unique and just 
different from anything they'd, they'd heard before we'd been hearing all our lives. And mm-hmm. so it was, I, I, for myself, I didn't really realize, I, I think you're right. I think he did have that thing. And I think he was, I think he was a great man. And I didn't really realize that until I would say these last couple of years. And, um, because he was so familiar, he was, you know, he's, he's just my dad. And, you know, we hear, you know, he's, yeah, he's saying that again. And, you know, but I, but I think you're right. I think you're right. And I'm, I'm so glad that so many people were influenced by him and that we have, you know, the, um, my sister came from, from Minneapolis, uh, right before he passed away and she stayed with us for, for several weeks. And we went around to all the little free libraries in our, in our town and distributed his books. We put, put a bunch of his books up in there. So hope, so he's still having an influence and, and hopefully Absolutely. will for, for a long time to come. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And the boundaries of order book, I'm glad you brought that up because that does tie in with, I think with what you're saying about democracy and finding order in society. I, I actually, I think that's my favorite of his books because it's, it's not, it's not just talking about the problem and it's not mm-hmm. just talking in sort of philosophical terms. It's very practical. It's, it really gets down to nuts and bolts of what's required for a civilized society for people to live in peace with each other. And I think what you talk about in your in your article, um, I just want to quote from this briefly okay. to give people a flavor. Um, you're talking about the chaos at following the election, and you say, and it gets worse every four years, despite the narrowing of any policy differences between the two parties over recent decades. Um, if anything, presidential yeah. voice votes are overwhelmingly about tribal affiliations with our with our kind of person, not substantive ideology. And then you go on to talk about how divisive our culture has become because of how politicized everything is. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Well, obviously, presidential elections have a feel of winner take all, not only because our, of our electoral college, but simply because the imperial presidency has grown so enormously in size and importance over our lives in the 20th century. So that's a that's a bad thing. And as we found out, especially during Trump, it's not even so much about the president, but the administrative agencies, the executive branch of the government, which doesn't really come and go with various presidents. That's the real state, which we have to worry about. Uh, it, it's almost like we purposefully design a system to create division every four years with these elections. I mean, if you wanted to, to write something out, a process or a method for having pitting Americans at each other's throats, you couldn't do better uh, than Trump versus Hillary Clinton or Trump versus Joe Biden. I mean, it, it's hard to, it's like out of a novel or something. So when we think that mass democracy and voting uh, produces bad results, bad outcomes, in other words, nobody's happy. We don't like the laws. We don't like, we worry about the economy. We have too many wars. So those are results. But it turns out the process itself is bad because the process itself has us angry, uh, has us unhappy, and also removes our focus from that result side. We're so bound Mm -hmm. up in the process that we're not thinking about the wars. We're not thinking about you know, things that I personally am concerned about, the the dollar, uh, debt, you know, those kinds of nuts and bolts things. Um, so we spend all of our time on process, and it's not a very good one. 
and we results are secondary. And so history shows us that that's, that's a bad combination because we're asleep at the switch, I think, with respect to a lot of things. And yet in, I, I spent time in, in both private schools and in government schools. And so I saw up close the sort of, yeah, it's indoctrination um, that kids get. And a lot of it has to do with this idea that the way the way to make a difference, the way to change things is through the political process. And that's really drummed in from an early age. So the people around us all have this belief that the only way to change things, the only way to make things better is to keep participating in this process. How do you how do you deal with that? Well, this is a, a symptom of sick societies, which is everything becomes political and politicized. Mm-hmm. You know, what TV shows you watch, the color of your skin, um, what church you go to, whether you like the NFL or don't like the NFL, all of these things uh, that, you know, whether you want to wear a face mask because of a virus or not, all of these things, which ought to be sort of separate and apart and independent of politics become political. And then when you throw on top of what was already going to be a very divisive year, basically a shutdown and a lockdown of the American economy and a lot of people stuck in their homes, a lot of people spending more time online because of COVID concerns. Uh, you know, this was just an absolute recipe for people to be hyper-political, to be seeing the world strictly through a political lens. So I think, you know, the, the very unsatisfactory short answer is we have to let the air out of the balloon a little bit. We have to depoliticize society. And I think there's sort of two ways you can go at that. One way is to say, well, you know, just submit. You know, Biden won and this is this is the new regime and this is what we've accepted. And so, uh, let you know, just live with some of this and accept uh, the ostensibly democratic judgment of your fellow citizens and and uh, go along. That's that's one way. The other way is to say that um, we ought to break up into some different political subdivisions, some different political entities, so that everyone gets a little more of what they want and a little less of what they don't want. You know, whether or not that could take take the form of outright secession of turning the United States into more than one country um, is a matter of opinion and something to discuss. But surely just through aggressive federalism alone, we could alleviate a lot of the social and cultural issues, which have really you know, or the sort of the slow simmer burn under this war we're in and, and just say, you know, people ought to be able to have different rules. What about guns? You know, do we have to have the same rules for guns in Manhattan as we do in the wilds of Alaska? You know, I don't think we do. I don't think we have to say, well, the second amendment federalizes uh, gun laws. Do we have to have one abortion rule for 330 million people? And, And especially when that rule has effectively been crafted by a tiny handful of judges. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, all of these things add to these tensions and they're all, I think, based on on centralization, some sort of centralized authority making decisions for lots and lots of people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and it's, you know, for anyone with any awareness of history, I think you, you look at where large centralized systems end up and it's pretty ugly. Um, in every case. And yet here in America, there's this whole narrative post-Civil War that, 
you know, that that issue was settled. You know, we've got the Civil War settled that and, and we can't go back to thinking that we can just break away. How, how do you deal with that objection? Well, it's powerful because there's a lot of psychology to uh, westward expansion. Manifest destiny is part of the American story. And then we we finally reach, uh, you know, these two nonsensical states, Hawaii and Alaska, which aren't even contiguous, uh, 49 and 50. And now 50 is a nice round number. And you right. got 50 stars on the flag and people start to think, well, that's who we are. And I, and I get that. But the, the question is not whether it's easy. The question is whether it's preferable to outright civil war. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, yeah. that's where we yeah. are. And, that's the, and, and of course, I think the answer to that question is yes. I think uh, you know, any kind of even slightly remote glib talk about a, a hot fighting war is just absolutely abhorrent to me. And so, you know, Tom Woods said something to the effect that political arrangements exist to serve us, not the other way around. I think and I think so someone else said something about, about that, that too. I think uh, Jefferson was that the guy's name? Uh, isn't that one of the founding documents of this country? You know. That- oh, sure. I mean, the Declaration of Independence is a much better document than the Constitution yeah. from our perspective, yeah. and it it absolutely talks about the need to unravel existing political arrangements. And and the idea that we can't do that without bloodshed, that everything has to be the Balkans or the former Yugoslavia, uh, and that this can never be accomplished. Uh, you know, that I don't think that speaks very well to the idea that, you, you know, humanity ought to progress. Yeah. Um, we have, yeah. we have a lot of history at our fingertips now from which we can learn. And honestly, you know, we could talk about how, you know, the, the red States are a bunch of hillbillies and they, the blue states subsidize them, ha, ha, ha. And, you know, without us, you'll be poor. And okay. And then the red states say, well, we give you the food and you guys have all that horrible Hollywood and all that crime in your big cities. And, you know, we, you know, um, so there's this hatred on an rural, uh, urban rural divide. But look, even if you took the coastal states and made those a country and then the middle states, I mean, they, we'd still be very, very wealthy by any world measure. So, you know, this isn't this isn't something worth fighting each other and dying over. That's my perspective. Yeah. And, and yet there there is a lot of talk. Of, I mean, there's been talk for a while about sort of a brewing civil war. And I think we've gotten to a point where it's widely recognized that there are these deep, deep divisions. I think, as, as you suggest, that it's created by the politicization, that it's that's actually created, maybe not deliberately, but it's sort of the natural outcome of having this, this entity that makes rules for millions and millions of people who are all very different. Um, so yeah, I, I think that is the big question is there, the divisions there, the, the, the antagonism is there, you know, pretending that it's not, there isn't going to get us anywhere. The, the question is how do we resolve that without bloodshed? And I think some of the things you talk about in your article, you mentioned this guy who I hadn't heard of before, Buckley, who talks, Frank Buckley, who talks about secession light. Um, that sounds pretty darn reasonable to me. Um, could you could you talk a little bit about what that is? Frank Buckley is a law professor at George Mason. Um, he's a Canadian guy, but he's been in the United States a long time. And he wrote a book, not advocating secession, but um, sort of penciling out what it might look like as something he increasingly thinks 
is likely, perhaps, in the United States. And what I'd like to point out as an aside is that people like Frank Buckley, uh, people like Angelo Cotavilla at the Claremont Institute, uh, people at, at outlets on the left like The Nation and The New Republic, I mean, these are these are relatively mainstream representations of left and right in this country, if we're going to use that terminology. These aren't wild-eyed people. I mean, that you know, a, a place like Mises.org has always had room for talk about secession. For 20, 30 years, we've been talking about that. But, you know, a lot of people in the political spectrum would say, well, that's fringe, and that's okay. But, you know, it's, it's less and less fringe every day. And, yeah. and we even hear uh, Rush Limbaugh apparently said something to this effect, wow. that he, he worries about this on his radio show recently. So, you know, what, what used to be a fringe conversation is coming more and more into the mainstream. So what Frank Buckley talks about is the idea that, you know, at the end of the day, even with the military, which is a mixed bag, there's only about three and a half odd million federales. So are the, you know, if all of a sudden a couple of renegade states decided they weren't going to abide by some Supreme Court edict, let's say, let's say some of those deplorable hillbilly red states said, we're going to have prayer on the football field or something before the game. I mean, <laughs> is, you know, are we going to send in troops? And I think the answer to that question can be found in the medical marijuana, mm-hmm. well, or the mar- the marijuana decriminalization movement, which has had really very quick and sweeping success over just about a decade. And and the feds did, did not send in the troops. I mean, the feds, even to this day, continue to say that federal law preempts and overrides state law, but they're not doing anything about it. And what, and, and so Atlas shrugged, you know, all these states said, look, Mm -hmm. uncle Sam is imposing basically an unfunded mandate on us. Cause when our cops pull someone over in our town and there's a bunch of marijuana in the car, they have to incarcerate this person. And that costs us, you know, $50,000 a year or something. So, um, it was more of a pragmatic thing, but once it started, it was like a domino effect. You started with California and Colorado and then others followed suit. And, uh, you know, my, my home state now, Alabama, which most people would consider deep red, has uh, some very serious changes in its domestic policies with respect to marijuana, but also with respect to nonviolent incarcerated drug offenders oh. uh, because of the cost of, of, of housing right. them. So right. it really is pretty rapid, a cultural and a mental and a psychological shift. So when you think of the rapidity of that, as an example, then I, I think that we could say that uh, across a lot of different issues, we could see the same thing. Yeah, well, and we've seen, I mean, even in California, which itself is very divided, there is that urban-rural divide in California, and there's even talk of splitting California, or there has been for years, and I feel like it's kind of coming to a head now that, you know, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe again, maybe this isn't such a fringe idea now, because that conflict is so, so in our face right now. But um, even in California, you know, there are plenty of counties that have said, no, we're not going to enforce your lockdown orders. We're not going to enforce your mask orders. And some of it on constitutional grounds, some of them are very, very much saying, you know, these are, some of it is, yeah, we just don't have the resources and this is silly. But some of it is, no, this isn't, it's not our job to tell people what to wear or to, to force people to stay in their homes and that kind of thing. So, we're seeing that now, which I think is very healthy. I think it's great. And not just in California, but everywhere. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of jurisdictions that are just saying no and recognizing that enforcement really decisions really are up to them, that it is the sheriff that has the right to say, we're going to, we're going to enforce this law or we're not. And 
I think that's that's one good thing that's come out of the, the lockdowns. It's become so it's been such a crazy intervention that it's kind of forced people within the mainstream to recognize how crazy things can get. Well, there's actually a book which first year law students read, which I'm sure your father was familiar with called The Bramble Bush oh. by an author named Carl Llewellyn. And at, at the beginning of that book, Llewellyn says, where there is no sanction, there is no law. In other words, let's say this posted speed limit is 55, but everyone's going 70. And right around 71 or 72, the CHP starts to pull people over. So the law on the books is 55. The de facto law is of speed limit is 71, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So when I heard the Biden administration, the incoming Biden administration, talking about how they're going to impose a nationwide mask mandate, for example, <laughs> the first thing I thought was enforced by whom? Yeah. You know, I live in a small college town of about 75,000 people. I mean, there's there's a handful of local police here and and you know they would have a very difficult time mustering their resources to drive around yeah. <laughs> drive around and see people like walking down the street without a mask and pull them over and what cite them i mean how long is that going to take and then if they still refuse are you going to take them back to the local jail i mean this is for a country this vast it's just it, it's a, you know we've become somewhat ungovernable and that was one of yeah. the that was one of the things about Trump is that he made the left seriously consider the idea of things like sanctuary cities, uh, nullification of federal edicts. Yeah. And so, you know, this is something I think that we have to encourage. And and there's no perfect solution. We we shouldn't be utopian about this. If if um, you know, because there are there are, you know, red people in blue areas, there's blue people in red areas. So if the if the majority sentiment was to become more of a localized legal reality, um, there was there would be people who were made worse off from their perspective. I mean, this is this is just the way it is. But you know, I, I can certainly say that I would love to see California, for example, forty million people. I mean, alone could be one of the biggest economies in the world. It has it has uh, world class cities, or used to be world class cities, the San be. Francisco and L.A. Yeah. It's got world-class universities like UCLA and Berkeley. It has yeah. mountains, deserts, beaches. It has Hollywood. It has Silicon Valley. It has tourism. It has skiing. It has surfing. Uh, it, it would be an absolute, it has access to ports and the, and the whole Pacific Rim. It would absolutely be a, a, a standalone country without any problem. I mean, this is absurd to even or imagine two or, otherwise. Or two or three of them even. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure. No, now, it's- and so why couldn't California have its own uh you know tax structure why couldn't it have its own climate change rules why couldn't it make have free college have berkeley and ucla be free i, I i'll tell you what you'd have a lot of applicants um have have free health care have really progressive income taxes have wealth taxes have uh a, abortion on demand have you know basically uh, uh very strict or, or even outlaw rules on firearms uh, you know, knock yeah. yourself out. Yeah. And, and, and that's, and that's the direction they've been going. And there's a steady stream of productive people leaving the state. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think you're right. I think when, when there is, and that's what we see with the decentralization is when there is radical decentralization, when you've got lots of different regimes, people have choice and you're not stuck with, you know, you're not stuck with California, which 
you know, we've been we've been seeing people are rejecting mm. the top down craziness that the politicians are, in, are inflicting on us um, because there's choice, because there are different to some extent regimes. So I just I feel like given what we're up against right now, it just seems obvious to me that more decentralization is has to be a part of the solution. Um, I would say even within California, because as you say, it's it's a beautiful state. It's a wonderful state in so many ways. And the politicians are destroying it. Mm -hmm. Well, all you have to do is look at Reno in Incline Village, Nevada, <laughs> yeah. to find out where a lot of wealthy yeah. uh, Californians have gone. Because that, you know, with the new surcharge, there's already a 13.3 highest marginal rate on that highest income uh, a millionaire surcharge in California, but now they're thinking about raising that to about 15. And if you combine that with a, a highest marginal rate proposed under a Biden administration of about 35 or 38%, you know, you're getting up up there where, where it's basically half, not not of all your income, but of your highest income is just gone. And that's, you know, that's going to make a lot of people, um, however left they may be in their ideology, you know, that's a pretty big enchilada. Yeah. And a lot of the left do, at least a lot of the outspoken ones do tend to be sort of in the higher income bracket. So maybe that's something that will that will hit them. And that's on top of, you know, all the, the costs of living here that are driven by regulations, things like it's impossible to legally build housing in this state that is afford that is quote unquote affordable. I mean, there just the regulatory burden of doing that makes it impossible. And then, you know, their assault on on small businesses and on um, entrepreneurs, on on contract workers, it drives up the cost of living here to, to ridiculous levels. And you know, people are people are tired of it. So yeah, I mean I, I feel like there's there's a real silver lining here with the lockdowns, which is that all these things that we're talking about and that you know you've been aware of for years and years, and I've been aware of for years and years. Now everybody else is becoming aware of just how damaging centralized control can be. And so, sorry, that's my phone. Um, so, I feel like we're not the only ones looking at this kind of solution now. So, um, that's I, I just feel like that's good news. Yeah, I agree. I think it has been a, a year where people radically rethought a lot of things and, and questioned the official narrative in ways that perhaps they haven't before. Now, I will say this, Biden's victory, which looks pretty narrow. I mean, I don't know what happened in these particular states, which are somewhat contested. That's, you know, that's not really my concern. The point is that it's, it's awfully close. But let's say Biden had clearly won 60-40 popular, you know, uh, 400 or 380 or whatever in the in the electoral college. Let's say that it occurred. Um, it it still doesn't really change the fact that millions of Americans just aren't on board with this. I mean that that's that's the bottom line. Is what no one can answer yeah. is the question of what what should politically vanquished people do? You know now now the left feels like the Trump thing was a hiccup and it was an aberration mm -hmm. and the sort of the progressive. <laughs> arc of history, which was happening throughout the 20th century, is now going to continue. And so why should we be talking about decentralization or secession or federalism? Because we're winning. Yeah. You know, we're going yeah. to have our way and we're going to increasingly impose ourselves upon these recalcitrant hillbilly states. And so, you know, if secession, that's loser talk. Why should we go for that? 
So that's why I guess from a self-interested perspective, I like a real 50-50 split because that that forces both sides to say, you know, the other side is not just going away. This right. isn't going to just right. get better. And right. and both sides, I mean, there's more than two sides. I, I you know, we're being facile, of course, but yeah, yeah. For, for, for conversational purposes. I mean, both sides could have so much more of what they want right here, right now, today. If they would just let go of this yoke, this federal Leviathan, you know, I, I mean, do do let's say cultural and religious conservatives in Alabama, do they really have to 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 try to impose abortion rules on the San Francisco Bay Area? I mean, what what they don't try to import impose them on Norway, right? <laughs> And 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 San Francisco might as well be as far removed from Alabama as, as Norway is. So, you know, it's just these yeah. these sort of silly lines. So well, it's, um, it's it's getting us to question this whole idea of, you know, one entity making the rules a one size fits all solution for all different kinds of people. And I, my hope is that 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 whole idea just starts to crumble and fall apart. I, I did want to ask you about one specific thing because now Texas is talking about there's, 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 I guess a bill put forward in Texas now to actually secede, to, to mm-hmm. declare itself a separate, what do you think about, what do you think its chances are? Well, Texas is unique in that there's always been a Republic of Texas. There's always mm-hmm. been an independent spirit and mindset. And there's always been a secessionist movement in Texas, really, since it first became a state. So that's, it's it's got a little bit more of a track record in that sense. The other thing is that Texas has done, which makes this a little more, uh, you, you know, w- possible, I guess, is that they've gone and created uh, a bullion repository, which oh. would enable them to potentially have a gold-backed currency from day one. And, and of course, they've also done a good job of attracting business and capital investment yeah, from California from states. So, I yeah. mean, they certainly, like California, they could certainly be a, a, a country. They could certainly have the size and scope of an economy and, and you know, in a way that it would be hard for Rhode Island or something maybe to, to match. But, um, you know, the great thing about that is it could uh, eliminate some of our tensions with Mexico. Um, You know, it might uh, pose an opportunity for us to change to change this relate bad relationship we've got with Mexico. So, you know, I don't think that that's on the on the immediate horizon in Texas. But at some point, um, I think it would take a hardship. I think it would take some sort of real economic crisis or real uh, military crisis where people just you know, very rapidly lost their faith in, in Washington, DC. And, uh, you know, maybe that's just human nature that as long as we're reasonably comfortable and there's food in the fridge and there's groceries and gasoline and we can, we can, you know, Facebook comes up and the internet works, you know, that we'll just sort of slide into, into complacency. But when you, you know, maybe, maybe we just need some sort of shock to, to, you know, a domino to get this started. And also, I mean, something that you, that you alluded to, you know, the fact that Texas has a bullion repository, there is, there's always the financial sort of the strings that are attached, you know, with California. So the marijuana is a good example because, um, you know, at, at medical schools or medical centers, um, the one that, that we go to, that our daughter goes to, um, one of our doctors 
does research on medical marijuana. He's not allowed to touch it. He's not allowed to actually handle it in his labs. And it's not because of any law. It's not because of a California law. It's because that medical center won't get federal money if they don't fall, if they don't play by the rules. And so this whole, I, I feel like the whole thing of federal money going out to the states is part of what's holding it all together is what happens when that, what, what happens when either that's not enough to, to get them to put up with, with the nonsense or that federal money isn't there anymore. I mean, what happens when the dollar finally does implode? Well, there's this conversation around who, who subsidizes whom. And of course yeah. the blue states are convinced they subsidize the red. I'm not as, as convinced because GDP measures retail end stage production. And a lot of that goes out from farm and agricultural areas and ends up in places like Chicago and Silicon Valley and New York because yeah. of the financialization of, of the economy. So I, I'm not as convinced, but there's some truth to that. So I think I think the idea of, of federal money and federal debt, along with federal land and the federal military and federal entitlements, all of these are very sticky, tough questions. Don't Don't get me wrong. But I mean, you could say the same thing about the former Soviet Union in 1980. Yes, yes. Uh, right? Yeah. I mean, things that were unthinkable. There's yeah. actually a guy named Marcus Ruiz in California who is one of the heads of the Yes California movement, which is the, the breakaway secessionist thing. And he's a guy who I've met a couple times, really like him. He, he comes from the left. But in his perspective, and he's done some of the math on this, people say, well, California's got these uh, huge pension liabilities. And so it would be totally bankrupt if it tried to go out on its own, well, you know, he argues that if, if California kept all of its federal income taxes, you know, in mm -hmm. California, mm -hmm. that the, the dollars add up and it could actually solve some of these mathematical problems. Now, I, I, you know, I don't know that that's true. It's very interesting to think about. Yeah, that is. Uh, look, interesting. at some point, at some point, this is all fantasy land that there's going to be a debt jubilee. Yeah. I mean, fed, federal debt is not going to be repaid in any meaningful way except through inflation. No. Um, the whole world knows that it's just no, everyone's hoping they won't be the last receiver of that inflated repayment. That's all, right. including old people, by the way, who are hoping Social Security is going to last. So yeah. the, the whole world knows this. That, that's no big secret. So, um, you know, I think we just have to look at, at uh, as the Soviet Union as an example of something yeah. where, you know, it, it, yep. it could never happen. And then it did. Right. And, I, and I'm thinking of, you know, because I spent time in China, that's exactly the argument as China was starting to implement economic reforms. There was this whole argument about, well, what about all the people who are dependent on the state, who are the, the employees of the state enterprises? You know, there's no way that they can keep up with because because. There was act, there was price inflation happening as the economy started getting going. People who had were doing real productive activity and making things and you know having small businesses and and producing, they prices were going up. And so if you were stuck in a in a state owned enterprise, you know it was these two separate. And so every you know all these people looking at this problem were like, oh, there's no way they'll never catch up. They can, but of course they did. They got in on the game in different. It, it, we can't foresee to try and foresee exactly how things are going to come together or how people are going to solve their problems is foolish, I think. And, you know, yeah, it was impossible until until it happened. And well, it's but it's not just foolish. It's short sighted. In other words, mm -hmm. is the only yardstick by which we measure the desirability of a new political arrangement. But if the only yardstick is 
the effect of that on my own personal finances and well-being and happiness, then maybe, I, you know, maybe a period of turmoil uh, really is going to be worse. But I'm thinking about this in terms of my kids and maybe some right. of have grandkids. So, right. you know, it, it's all about long-term horizons. And Asian countries do that better. Yeah. Um, a- Asian, yeah. you know, I, I mean, when we say the Asian culture, Asian mindset, that's that's obviously so broad as to be ridiculous because each country is very, very different. But in general, as a general proposition, you know, you used to recall the once great Sony Corporation, that their managers had 500-year plans for the company. Meanwhile, over here, you know, uh, Sarbanes-Oxley, it's like U.S. publicly traded companies. The management's trying to juice the financials for the next quarter. Right, right. You know, yeah, no, so, it, it is um, a different, it, it's a different outlook. It's a different philosophy. Um, yes. Yeah, yes. I, I've got to let you go. Um, thank you so much for coming on. This is yes. this is a huge topic, and I'd love to have you come on another time and and go go into it in more detail um, because I, I, I do feel like more people are becoming aware that this isn't working, that this whole participatory democracy stuff and the, the nation of the, the federal government of the U.S., there's something fundamentally broken here. And I think there are a lot of different, you know, legitimate points of view on what the solution is. But to me, it just seems very clear that decentralization in some form or forms has got to be a big part of that solution. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, thanks for being here.